Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I got for you today? Well, we have a busy news week. We have the bombing of an Iranian military facility. We have the little red balloon that could, flying high over U.S. skies. And last but not least, we have war with China coming to a theater near you. All that and more coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid fire news. So, we'll start with those two massive earthquakes which just absolutely rocked southern Turkey and parts of northern Syria. Uh, there was two earthquakes that came back to back. One of them was a 7.8 magnitude and the other was a 7.5. And as of now, the death tally is at 3,800 people and probably hundreds if not thousands more injured. So... Uh, we pray for the well-being of those affected by these earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. We have protests to normalization with Israel in Bahrain. They, the protesters don't want that. Uh, we'll see how the government responds. I think that they'll continue with the, the normalization. But with one of these stories we'll be talking about in just a little bit, they might feel necessary to reverse course on that which would fundamentally start to undermine the Abraham Accords, which Trump had negotiated. And truthfully, it was, it's Israel's fault. Israel's actions would have led to this. And we'll get into why that might end up being the case when we get to the story on Iran. We have Ukraine lowering the minimum age of registration. This is for the military. They lowered the minimum age to 16, which... To me, hints at the beginning of a chronic manpower issue. So here we are. Here we are. Like uh, we've, I've laid out the numbers for a little bit now, and here, here we are. I, I said we were going to get to this point with the rate of loss that they were suffering. That net negative of, and this is me lowballing the actual number. That net negative of seventeen thousand combat capable troops every month. Now they're down to, well, as of the beginning of February, they were at roughly the same size. And this is purely combat troops, not the troops in the back that, you know, keep the troops supplied, not the reserves, but purely the combat troops, the men on the front line. Those numbers have dwindled down to roughly the same size as what the Russians had coming in. The... The combat-capable force that the Ukrainians have has been cut by more than half now. And remember what I said? The Russians had issues manning their front line the entire war until their mobilization in October. Uh, and, and really, the lines didn't solidify until November when the fruits of that mobilization started to show, when a few thousand extra troops started showing up on the front line to shore it up. Ukraine has gone through all of its mobilizations. It doesn't have much left in it. 
if the fact that they're now trying to dig to dig deep into the 16 year old range uh 16 17 probably because uh, likely they started at 18 like most normal countries they're scraping the barrel now in terms of their manpower pool and again they might still have a few hundreds of thousands in reserve that just haven't been that they haven't completed their training and they haven't been properly equipped perhaps both to the point where they could be classified as combat capable they probably still have a few hundred thousands in there i i'd, I'd still wager that they have at least half a million or 400,000 you know somewhere around that range so they do have fight in them it's just that the combat capable troop numbers are dwindling at a rate that is astonishing and will endanger their their state and is making it hard for them to man their front line like they have a choice they can either send the conscripts to the front and effectively not have a front line to begin with or they could make do with what they have and they're choosing to make do with what they have to their credit but here we are they're starting to have issues manning their army because of how much their troop numbers have dwindled and in time they'll have issues starting uh, to man the front line in general I mean we also have uh, stories that they're pulling forces away from Kharkov and other regions to reinforce Bakhmut. So they're pulling troops away instead of deploying the reserves, like reserves of trained men, which suggests that they don't have much of an operational reserve of trained men, and that the reserves themselves are either A, unequipped, B, not fully trained yet, or C, all of the above. So now they're having to pull troops from other fronts to reinforce Bakhmut, which, one, weakens the entire front line and will accelerate that problem that I envisioned that they would have, which is manning the front line as their numbers start to dwindle down to the same numbers that the Russians had going in. When we compare the experience, the Russians had issues manning the front line the entire war until they started beefing up their numbers. Now Ukraine is below the force that Russia came in with, they are going to start having those same issues manning the front. And they're pulling troops away from the front to go to Bakhmut. Which, so one, it has the effect of weakening the line, and two, it has, we're adding fuel to the flame of this potential danger. That when Bakhmut gets encircled, it could actually be the end of the war. In, in, a, in a functional sense, not, not in a, in a, oh, the war is over, we're going to sign the peace treaty. No, no, no. I mean, in terms of uh, Ukraine's ability to put up an effective resistance to Russian intrusions into their territory, if they lose tens of thousands of men in Bakhmut because they keep reinforcing and then they get cut off all of a sudden, well, that's that's a wrap. That's That's just it. Especially if they're having to strip parts of the strip other parts of the front line to reinforce Bakhmut if Bakhmut falls and they take catastrophic losses again again catastrophic being you don't pull the men out they instead get beaten up by artillery to the point where they can't fight anymore or they die or even worse they surrender because they get encircled that's catastrophic loss that's a catastrophic defeat in Bakhmut Ukraine cannot recover from that, and it would greatly accelerate 
the their defeat. And the more men they have in Bakhmut to be destroyed, the I, I just can't help but feel Ukraine is shortening its lifespan by doing this. But it keeps going. And I feel that the result is going to be that as Russia continues its advance and it, it has secured some cities, it's, uh, it's making advances near Vuglodar and Siversk, and I believe near Vuglodar, that's one of the other main roads to supply Bakhmut. If that road, if they secure that road, perhaps they don't secure Vuglodar itself first, but they secure the road. And now Bakhmut can't be properly reinforced by road. They're going to have issues supplying them. It, it, it just gets worse by the week, and they keep trying to reinforce. And I... Again, it didn't have to be this decisive battle. Bakhmut really didn't, but they keep doubling down on it, and the danger, the risk keeps coming up without a proportional increase in the reward. If they win the Battle of Bakhmut, the Russians will still have hundreds of thousands of men just redeployed to other parts of the front, which will inevitably, inevitably force the Ukrainians to pull their troops out to defend other parts of the front if the Russians chose to pull back from Bakhmut, and then they would take Bakhmut anyway. The The risk-reward is completely disproportional, way in favor of risk rather than reward. But that's the path Ukraine is going down. Uh, and while we're still talking about Ukraine, they also are in the midst of an internal government purge, as they, they've just swapped out their defense minister, and there's a number of other sacking going along, they're getting rid of certain other officials, and as this power struggle continues. And this latest round, this purge here, began as shortly after the CIA director Bill Burns made a visit to the country. And now, all of a sudden, you see all these people starting to fade away, which leads to speculation of the role the CIA has played in instigating this purge. And more speculation that U Ukraine's leader Zelensky might actually be on the way out, courtesy of this purge. Uh, but that's some speculation for another day. We have Leopard 2 tanks from Canada arriving in Ukraine. The Germans are only sending Leopard 1s. We have, uh, we talked about Russia and forces advancing in Vuglodar and Siversk. But we also have some statements by the Polish Prime Minister. Morawiecki. Uh, he made uh, he made these statements at a conference at a conference on support for Ukraine, and I'll just get into what he said because it's it can be consequential. It is a little bit insightful, although probably not in the way that he thinks it is. But I do believe it's worth bringing up. Now he said, uh, "Quote: Now is not the time for a." Ceasefire. Today, Ukraine needs our support and hope. This hope is being born in Poland. Uh, end quote. So, he's directly referring to the numbers of troops that they're raising in Poland. He's trying to increase the army to 300,000. All the weapons and equipment and stuff moves through Poland before it goes to Ukraine. It doesn't, it doesn't go through the other NATO members. Uh, not, not the ones that have a border with Ukraine, not, not Romania, not... Hungary, it all goes to Poland, and then it goes into Ukraine. So, 
Ukraine has been the logistical linchpin of this Lend-Lease effort to Ukraine. So that combined with them raising this military force, which we've joined in on the speculation that it they might be seeking a, a land grab in western Ukraine, which will be under the disguise of a, a humanitarian corridor or uh, a direct intervention to save Ukraine. It'll be a land grab for Poland, but, you know, optics matter. So as they're building up this force and as all these weapons and all these... Tr- not not troops yet, but all these all this equipment and all this gear moves through Poland to Ukraine. He is basically saying that Poland and what's happening in Poland is the hope for Ukraine's survival, particularly what may end up happening in the end. Although he didn't say anything about a land grab, he he didn't say anything about that. That's just a again speculation, but speculation that isn't entirely irrelevant to this situation and is not entirely unlikely. So we'll keep that in the back of our minds. But I'll continue with what he said because he also said, quote, this hope is a seed from which may develop an entirely new geopolitical order. He said, we are facing a clear choice, either victory for Russia and defeat for the West or a renaissance of Western civilization, end quote. And to that, I have to say, uh, objective decline it is, because we're not going to win this war. We are not. Ukraine is not going to win this war. It's not going to fight Russia to a standstill. Uh, The fact that there's... And it boggles the mind to see how many of these professional experts have gotten their analysis just so objectively wrong, but the depth to which their analysis was wrong has been hidden by the stalemate in the war. But as that stalemate starts to jiggle and buckle under the weight of continuous Russian offensives and eventually under the weight of a ridiculously enlarged invasion force, that stalemate will disappear, and a war of movement will resume. And when the war of movement resumes, it'll become painfully obvious to all the people who thought otherwise that Ukraine is not winning the war and will not win it. And, in fact, I would go as far as to say that it cannot win the war. And at that point in time, negotiations will probably be off the table. If, it, if we have to get to that point, the negotiations just won't even be an option anymore. So even the whole, we need a negotiated settlement, and it's obviously going to end in a negotiated settlement, even the people who come around to that position will end up looking only a little silly, you know, only a little silly. You can't blend them. I mean, but I stood alone. In my belief, Ukraine was going to be annexed, but the more this goes on, the more it looks like that's exactly the way it's going to go. So we'll see what happens there. But he, uh, back to Morachevsky, he's correct that the war is going to lead to an entirely new geopolitical order. That much he's correct on. Uh, and perhaps that transformation won't be completed by the war. 
uh, the war's end, uh, I imagine it'll take another uh, another major conflict for that to happen, uh, which will likely be Taiwan. But he's correct in that the old geopolitical order is going away, and that this war will be a catalyst for that. Um, now, he frames it in the light of Poland and the West coming together to help Ukraine is what's going to form this new this new order. That's not going to be the case because you're going to lose. Now, it's not popular to say that, but that's what's going to happen. Instead, it's Russia who's going to lead the way into this new multipolar world order. That's that's the new geopolitical order that we're going into uh, that he that flies over his head as he makes statements like this. But it is interesting to see that this clash of civilizations narrative is now coming into the fray um, to try to... It appears to be like a, a last-ditch attempt to really get the West on board Ukraine again, like we were at the beginning. And by we, I mean other people, because I wasn't. But the desperation to get people to go along with this war is increasing and will only get worse because... You know, the longer the war goes on, even if it's a stalemate, what reason do people have to believe that Ukraine's going to win if it's a stalemate all this time? Russia has more men, they have more weapons, they have more men, they have more advanced weapons. If it's a stalemate, Russia's going to win. And anybody can see that. Even the most staunchly pro-Ukrainian people can see that. Now, whether or not they'll admit that is a different question. But... We will see an entirely new geopolitical order. It's just that the seed will be laid, it'll be planted by Russians, not by the Polish. And as far as facing a clear choice of victory for Russia and defeat for the West, or a renaissance of Western civilization, well, it's gonna be victor, it's gonna be that first option, victory for Russia and defeat for the West. There's not gonna be a, a renaissance for Western civilization. In fact, I imagine this Western solidarity is going to collapse as a result of crushing defeat in this war. Crushing, crushing defeat with a recession, well, a depression mounted on top of that. Yeah, there's not going to be a renaissance for us uh, if you define us as the West. Now, for me, I define us as America. So we will have a renaissance after our Great Depression 2.0. That's baked into the cards. It's unavoidable. But hey, we'll bounce back, you know. And we'll have a renaissance. We'll have reindustrialization. We'll have some real economic growth once we, you know, abolish the Fed and get rid of the income tax. And may or may not have Trump back, but you know, the Europeans, they will we'll hold off on our judgment for them, but America will bounce back. We'll have a renaissance. Uh, West, the West, no. And you know, in a way, the Russians are doing me a favor here, and the Chinese will as well, in that they will destroy this the U.S. hegemony through force of arms. I would prefer if we left it alone ourselves and went home. That that's what I want. So it's not it's not like I want us to go fight and lose a war. It's not like I want Americans to die in these wars, or anyone to die for that matter. Well, when I say I don't care, 
I mean that in the most basic sense. You do you, and I do me, and you leave me alone, and that's the way we do things. But no one in America wants to go home. Even though that would be in our interest, and we would sidestep all this Cold War stuff, all this World War Three talk, none of it would even be on the... None, they, they wouldn't even be topics of discussion if we were in home. And if we went home, America would finally be able to deal with issues that actually matter to Americans. Inflation, jobs, the economy, pri housing prices, you know, crime, homelessness, things that actually matter to this country. But instead, we're worried about what the Chinese are doing over Taiwan. And it's... It's insane. But while I don't want it to go down like this, this happening, this crushing defeat that's coming in Ukraine, and the crushing, the even more crushing defeat that's going to come in Taiwan, will probably tear apart NATO, probably tear apart the EU, and will certainly do away with this idea of Western solidarity. If only out of European and Anglosphere rejection of American leadership at that point in time. And if they reject our leadership, then that leaves us with just ourselves, and we'll finally be able to go home. And then we'll have the Renaissance, and, and that's the only way we get our, our Renaissance. That's the only way we find our flame, so to speak, is when we come home. When Johnny comes marching home, we'll be better. But, uh, yeah, I wanted to touch on that. And now we will get into the uh, meat of this episode in just a moment. Alrighty, now it's time to get into the meat of this episode, and we'll start with the bombing of an Iranian military facility. Uh, and we'll just cut to the chase and say that Israel and the United States did it. And now we can just wrap this up and move on to the next topic. <laughs> but yeah. So, Israel has carried out a series of drone strikes on Iran, including on an Iranian military complex where they were manufacturing their drones. Uh, and it, it wasn't that long ago that we got some confirmed reports of Iran supplying military drones to Russia, so this may have been an attempt to curb that supply of weapons, but um, it's not like it's going to change the outcome. It's not like Russia can't make its own drones anyway. But uh, what shocks me is that this is just so overt. It's so overt that there's not, there's not even, there's no, there's no alibi here. There's no reasonable doubt. There's, there's no, hey, you, you don't know if I did. It, it's literally just out there in the open. Yeah, America, Israel, they did it. They worked together on this. They bombed this facility. And it's, it's shocking. Now, is this meant to send some sort of message to Iran, the countries doing the rapprochement with Iran, like Saudi Arabia? Is it meant to sim uh, is it meant to signal to our allies in the region that we're hey we're still here? We might be dealing with Ukraine, but we're still here for you. Like, what is this for? Other than a deliberate provocation at a time when we're already. We've already bitten off more than we can chew with the other deliberate provocation with Russia. Perhaps it's an attempt to change the narrative away from Ukraine and towards Iran. Now, how you're going to 
avoid the eventuality of the press having to tell the public and to a, a, an extent as well, the government, the Western government having to tell the Western publics, hey, we gave literally over a hundred billion dollars to people who were literal Nazis. And no, we don't mean that metaphorically or rhetorically or poetically or theoretically or in any other fancy way. We gave all that money and all that weapon, all, all those, all those millions and billions of dollars worth of equipment to literal Nazis, straight up. Not only are they going to have to say that, but they're going to have to say, we did that, and then they lost the war, and the Russians now own all the equipment. Whoops. Is that... <laughs> like... So... And the shift is coming. Don't, don't, don't even... Don't even kid yourself here. And by yourself, I mean me. Don't even kid me. We know that they're going to attempt. They're, they're going to attempt to distract Americans and Europeans as well away from the catastrophe that's coming soon. It's coming soon. I mean, February is here. And the offensive still hasn't begun. So I'm I'm now looking at a spring offensive, or they're going to do something wild on the anniversary of the war. I, I can't give you an exact timetable of when all these hundreds of thousands of troops are going to make their move. But when they do, it's a wrap. It's over. Especially if, at that point, they've taken Bakhmut, and Ukraine has tens of thousands of troops encircled because they didn't pull out, and instead tried to reinforce so that is coming and we we know it's coming and we're not prepared for that so to go starting shit with iran at the same time now uh, why I, I just it's so bizarre to me the timing of all this like this is just the absolute worst timing like when i play a strategy game Unless I'm ready to fight a second war, two wars at the same time, I usually fight them one at a time. Uh, like barbarians and civilization, you know, you deal with them as they come. But if you're fighting a major country, you usually want to have your army present. And if you're fighting two major countries, well, you want to have two armies present. We're exhausting our we're exhausting our stockpiles on one war we are struggling we are fighting for our life and losing and by we i mean the west and when i say the west i really mean ukraine they're fighting for their life and losing and we have emptied out the warehouses the stockpiles the armories the the depots where we're giving them everything we have we are allowing them to take us for all we are worth and they're still losing so how then do you go from that to let's go bomb Iran as well? It's it's incredibly terrible timing. Like, uh, it doesn't matter what the true objective of it is, if it's deeper than I can see, it's terrible timing. And it's not going to get anything useful accomplished either. But I, I couldn't help but compare how Russia deals with us supplying weapons of similar lethality 
to those drones, how they deal with us supplying weapons to Ukraine. They don't bomb the United States. They don't bomb Poland, where all the equipment goes through before it gets to Ukraine. They don't bomb Germany, France, or Britain. They don't do that. And I thought that was a very interesting contrast to take note of as we see these sort of similar situations play out. We're supplying weapons to Ukraine. Iran is supplying weapons to Russia. One of those things is okay. The other warrants being bombed. But back to the, the countries at hand, I just couldn't help but ask myself upon looking at this, because it's a, it's a relatively, relatively small story, but I, I have to ask, at what point do we acknowledge that Israel and even the United States are in a state of war with Iran? Like, we pretend that we're not at war, we say that we're not at war, we... We say things like we want a, a negotiation for the Iran nuclear deal. We want J Iran to return to the JCPOA and all this. But if you're in a state of war and you're bombing them, what reason do they have not to go for the nuke? Because apparently the only countries you leave alone and don't attack directly are the countries that have nuclear weapons. Now, that theory is going to be tested out... Uh, Greatly. It's going to be very, very greatly stress-tested when the Taiwan War kicks off and we dive headfirst into a direct confrontation with China. But is a nuke what it takes to get us to leave somebody alone? It shouldn't be. But I, we don't do this to France. We don't do this to Britain. We don't do this to Pakistan, even though we found Osama bin Laden chilling out in Pakistan right next to their most prestigious military academy. We, we don't treat Pakistan this way. Where's the Pakistan nuclear deal? You know? Where's their nuclear deal? Where's the India nuclear deal? Hmm? No one's asking for those. Where's the Israel nuclear deal, for that matter? No, no one's asking for that one. It's only Iran that, <laughs> that needs a nuclear deal. Fran France, Britain, they don't need that. Russia, we, we, we won't even bother trying with that one. North Korea? Even North Korea gets a pass. Even North Korea gets a pass. And guess what? We don't invade North Korea. We don't bomb North Korea. We don't shoot at North Korea. We do literally nothing to North Korea. But Iran, where we bomb them at will? Is a nuke really what it takes to stop the United States from violating your sovereignty? That should not be the case. But it, it, it looks like that's what it is. And considering that that's what it is, why wouldn't the Iranians go for the nuclear device? Why shouldn't they? No one else has these artificial restrictions placed on them. Now, we can talk about non-proliferation all day long. But they are at war with a nuclear-armed power. Since we want to bomb them whenever we want. Now, the, sure, the Israelis did it this time, but don't forget, we bombed Soleimani. When he was in Iraq, the second he stepped, set foot outside of Iranian soil, we bombed an Iranian national who was a top general. Imagine if, if Russia or Iran or China bombed Lloyd Austin or Antony Blinken or any, when they set foot outside the country. You, you imagine the kind of uproar we had, especially when we, we get to talking about this balloon that flew over us. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine how we would have responded to that? That's an act of war. We commit acts of war on Iran. 
And yet, I also just can't help but acknowledge that Russia and Iran conduct themselves way better than we do and way more maturely than we do, even though we are in this state of war. We bomb whoever we don't like whenever we want. Meanwhile, Russia will watch us arm a country to the teeth that they are at war with. Literal Nazis. And they won't attack us. And even in the case of Iran, they get bombed directly by us and by Israel. And yet, they still restrain themselves from direct retaliation. So while it's impressive that they have this level of restraint that I wish my country had, or at the very least would exercise, I know we have it, we're on the other side of the ocean. We have plenty of restraint that we can exercise. We just don't, we just choose not to. But for as impressive as that restraint is, and you can also apply that to the Chinese, restraint doesn't last forever. Russia exercised restraint on the Eastern question, which was the Ukraine issue, they exercise restraint over Ukraine and the Donbass and the Minsk agreements. Exercise restraint on that for eight years. From 2014 to 2022 when they invaded. They said straight up restraint for eight years. And then that restraint gave way to the invasion we saw last year. We're coming up on the anniversary of that. And their restraint dwindles by the day. Because remember, they went in really, really soft. They didn't want to go in and slaughter everybody in their path. They didn't want to go and kill the women and children. They didn't want to go in and slaughter all the fighting age men. They didn't want to go in and tear up the country to the point where it couldn't function as a country anymore. They went in and we could see them because they left the cell towers and the internet running. They left the, they left the, the lights on. They left the water running, the gas running. They left Ukraine as a country and just rolled in, dealing minimal damage. Something that they really won't be given credit for for a long time, especially by Western outlets. But that's how they went in. So even when that restraint that they had before gave way to a military operation, even in that they exercised restraint. Now we're getting to the point where they deliberately say we're going to grind the Ukrainian army down. It's a meat grinder now. It's a war of attrition. We're just going to bomb. We're just going to shell and bomb them until there's nothing left. We're just going to keep bombing their civilian infrastructure until they don't have electricity anymore. Until they, they can't move anything around the country anymore. Until they don't have fuel. Don't have any way of resupply. That restraint is dwindling by the week. But it's still there. But restraint doesn't last forever. So, given that that's the Russians, and that's a very peculiar case, given that that's how Russia's exercised its restraint, and even their patience has run thin, what, at what point does Iran also cease exercising its restraint? And what kind of damage will they do to Israel when they finally let loose? I mean... Iran produces all of its military equipment. They've been doing so for a long time. If they have enough to sell drones to the Russians, then they certainly have large stockpiles, or at least a decent stockpile of those drones for themselves. How, if they were to mobilize for war on a 
you know, relatively proportional scale to what the Russians did. If Iran would have tried to put up, say, a million men, a standing army of a million men into the field, uh, well, they have one, but, you know, you can't, you can't send your entire army into another country. If they were to raise, say, half a million to man the fort back at home to where they could deploy the other million, and this is just me throwing out numbers here, if they were to mobilize like that, and they might not be able to sustain that for the same period of time that the Russians can. But if they were to do a mobilization like that, what would Israel be able to do about that? Especially if Iran got permission from all the countries that the United States and Israel bomb on a daily basis, like Iraq, like Syria, you know, the Persia, the Pact of Persia. Oh, I found an opportunity to bring that one back. Pact of Persia. Not not this is an official alliance or anything, but it's just a, a a convenient term for me to use for this general sphere of Iranian influence. If they were to give Iran permission to move their actual army through their countries, and they already allowed Iranian militias to move through, as is the case in certain battles in Syria, what would Israel be able to do against a, a million man strong Iranian army? against the full might of the Iranian Air Force, with supporting airstrips in Iraq and Syria. Especially in the event, that the likely, not likely, the coming event of the end of the Syrian civil war. If Iran is allowed to direct its full military weight at Israel, what does Israel do? All this, all, all this bombing, all this death, all this destruction, this needless chaos... The second it gets turned on Israel, what does Israel do? They cannot fight all their neighbors at once anymore. They can't do that again. They know they can't fight Iran and win in a direct confrontation in the flat, wide-open desert. That's just not an option for them anymore. They might have the... The Iron Dome can barely handle the, the, the scads of rockets that the Palestinians will throw at them. It's a it's an all right system, but it can be overwhelmed. You think the Iranians don't have more missiles than the Palestinians and Hamas? Of course they have more missiles. They've been preparing for this fight their whole life. They've had no choice. When Iran's patience wears out, and that restraint gives way to them letting loose, Israel is in for a world of hurt. And it will be a world of their own making because it was their actions which will have led to that outcome. And it's they still have room to, to course correct. Like they, they have so much room. I, I paint the pictures though this is just the end of the world for Israel. But understand, it's it's really not. It doesn't have to be anyway. They They have so much time. They have so much room to maneuver. They have so many options available to them that don't involve being an ass to all their neighbors, and they choose not to take any of them. They double down on conflict with Iran, and the Iranians haven't responded in kind. But the second the Iranians do, and they mobilize for war, 
Israel does not have anything close to a comparable population to even put up that kind of a fight. All right. Israel's a heavily militarized state. Everyone there goes through basic military training because they have to maximize all their manpower. But that is a, a weight of numbers that you just can't deal with. The Iranians will literally send a fraction of the size of your entire country at you. And you don't have strategic depth either. So the second that army is on your border, they can hit literally anywhere in Israel that they want. And the second that that conflict happens, you know the Palestinians are going to rise up. It's automatically a war on two fronts. I can't understand why Israel would double down on this path towards self-destruction. But that's what they want. Or at least that's what their government wants. I can't speak for the people themselves. But I can't emphasize restraint. The restraint that Russia and Israel... The restraint that Russia and Iran have shown is impressive. But restraint does not last forever. And it's a matter of time until... All of Israel's wrongdoings will come back to get them. And all that trouble and all that nonsense comes due. You know? And it again, it really doesn't need to be this way. It really, really doesn't. But this is what happens when you don't pay attention. This is what happens when you go along with things for the sake of going along with things instead of thinking about your actions. Uh, I, I sound like a parent now, but it, I, I don't, I, like, it's mind-boggling when you, when you take a step back and see all the other options available to Israel, and you see that this is the one that they take, and it's like, okay, okay, well, you, you've, you've asked for this, you've asked for this, so, you know, you've asked for it, but... We can only hope and pray that they will course correct before it's too late. But now, we get on to the, the juicy side of this broadcast. Which is the story of the week. The little red balloon that could. Because uh, apparently, a Chinese weather balloon, flying at 60,000 feet, flew over the United States. And, unironically, a whole lot of Hot air was blown about it, so much so that you could almost say it was blown out of proportion. <laughs> All right, I, I'll stop, but this story really did gain legs and just ran away and dominated the news cycle for like a few days. And all this over a balloon. Uh, now this balloon, apparently... And this is the, this national security threat, right? And j just remember, just remember, this is a national security threat. This Chinese spy balloon, right? Right, this national security threat. It flew over the Pacific. Then it flew over the West Coast. And then got halfway through Montana. That means it went past, it went past Washington, Idaho, and then got into Montana, halfway through Montana before being spotted above Monstrum Air, Air Force Base, where we keep a certain number of our nukes. And the, the whole issue with the balloon is that it has this sensitive equipment that allows it to get really good pictures of the ground. The Chinese say it's a weather balloon. We, it, we've essentially accused it of being a spy balloon. 
and it could be used for spying purposes if it's able to get pictures like that. But come on now, come on now. We had all this time and waited until it was over Montana, over uh, waited until it was on top of the nukes to uh, to spot this thing. Okay. Okay. I mean, it got halfway through Montana before we can spot it. And I say spotted specifically because uh, that's not the same as detected. And the reason I separate the two terms is because the Biden administration apparently knew about the balloon since last week. But it they didn't do anything about it. It took a local newspaper in Montana to report on it after taking a picture of the damn thing themselves. And it took that before the public was alerted to the balloon's existence in the first place. Now, at this point in the story, when people first became aware that this balloon was flying over, flying high over American skies, people began arguing, <laughs> arguing over whether the balloon was a spy balloon or a weather balloon, a debate that still kind of goes on now. Uh, how Trump would or wouldn't have responded were he in office. He says he sh <laughs> he responded saying, shoot it down. So I guess we have an idea of what he would have done. We got arguments over whether or not we should shoot it down. Or, or if shooting the balloon down would be a provocation leading to war with China or not. And one, another one that I gathered was whether or not our military was prepared to fight a war specifically with China. It, it was a mess. I'll just say it. It was a mess. This this was the state of affairs in the country for the last few days, until Sunday, when it was ultimately decided by the Biden administration to, in fact, shoot it down. Except they did it over the Atlantic, off the coast of South Carolina. So, to we'll just rewind here, just to give you some context over this fateful decision to shoot down this national security threat, all right? We waited until it flew over Washington, Idaho, and Montana. Then we allowed it after it got past Montana and got spotted and the entire country knew about it. Then we decided to allow it to traverse the entire continental United States. Then before shooting it down, it was spotted over Montana. So the fact that it got shot down over the Atlantic uh, off the coast of South Carolina means that it traveled along a diagonal line flying over the Great Plains and the Mississippi River Valley before before we even shot it. My goodness. Well, what's the point of shooting it down at that point? You may as well just let it go. If you're going to let it fly over the entire country, you may as well just let it go. Especially when the, you... Factor in that the Biden administration knew about it for a week before and chose to allow it to just, yeah, it's, it's just going to fly over the country. Oh, would you look at that? Uh, what's the point of shooting it down after it's gone over the country? If it's if it's this national security threat, it's, it's able to take these pictures and beam them back to China in real time. It's like, okay, so you're, you're going to let it fly over the entire country and let them get all that data before before you shoot it down? Yeah, you're, you're going to let them have their fill first, and then you're going to shoot it down. They're like, okay, okay. But, hey, this is a national security threat, everybody. If you, can't, if you can't tell I'm being facetious when I say national security threat, I don't think it was much of a threat at all. <laughs> I think it's being overhyped in 
blown out of proportion. <laughs> but uh, it's 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 wild when you think about the flight path that this thing had to have taken to go from Montana to the coastline of South Carolina. And this itself gave way to, you know, once everyone was alerted to the presence of the balloon, this gave way to another line of arguments. Because you had people, uh, and I'll just say that if it was a spy balloon, well, congratulations, we, we've lost the Cold War, they know everything they need to know about us, and we handed it to them on a platinum platter, you know? You know, we're we're just we're just generous like that, you know. Got to give the Chinese a head start if we're gonna have a, a real cold war. But you have people going on all the mainstream news channels, uh, and this is the the second dimension of the debate here, the controlled government narrative of the debate here, which is, and you can tell it is because of the credentials of the people involved, military, ex intelligence, ex CIA. All, all the old warmongery type people, people from the war complex. And you have people going on the mainstream news channels, and of course that's the other that's the other uh that's the other tell. They they go on the mainstream. And and they start talking about how this is a, a deliberate attempt to humiliate the US government and how China wants to show how weak the United States is and how China can do whatever it wants on the global stage and America will do literally nothing about it. And we we, we have to stand up to Xi Jinping's China, you know, that that that's the rhetoric that came out of the government, and that's how you can tell that it was the party line, not of the Chinese, of the Americans, uh, to drum up war, or war support for a war with China. Tucker Carlson in particular sees this as the result of Joe Biden being bought and paid for by the Chinese government to the point where China could openly violate our airspace and the administration would know about it before it happened and then do nothing about it for uh, until the very end. Uh, they took no initiative on this in dealing with this blatant violation of our airspace. Uh, they, they waited until it was over the Atlantic, like, folks, <laughs> folks. The United States is a ridiculously huge country. It is a ridiculously... So the fact that we allowed it to go over the in, over the length of the country, mind you, it's not like they went from Canada to Mexico and, uh, or from Canada to, to Louisiana. Okay, okay. Uh, it's, not they were, it's not like they went from Ontario to New York and went over the little the little strip of land we have up in New England. No, they went over the whole continental United States from the west coast to the east coast on a diagonal flight path. That's that's just crazy. That, that's just crazy. Steve Turley brought up how this is just another dimension of the border crisis. We we don't even have we <laughs> we don't even have a sovereign airspace anymore. And I, I guess it was a, a solid point to point out. And it, it's. I just don't get it. I don't get it. That's we talk about this, this need for U.S. leadership overseas. Where's the leadership in our own country? I mean, my goodness, what if this actually was a spy plane? What if the Chinese were planning something terrible and they wanted to drop a 
and again, we're just we're just throwing out wild speculations here because the Chinese, quite frankly, want nothing to do with us. What if the Chinese wanted to drop a bioweapon in the United States? What if, what if they had an antimatter bomb on that balloon? You know? That, that, that'd been a wrap for us. We're out. We're out the game. And we allowed it to fly over the entire country. That's, that's terrible. Now, me personally, while I do not believe the balloon was nefarious in its purposes, I still think we should have shot it down, but, you know, over the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> I mean, what's the, what? And again, we have all these military bases uh, uh, surrounding China. And it's just such a necessity that we have to contain China. And then you let this balloon slip past all of that. We have Midway, Hawaii, the Aleutian Islands. You just let the balloon slip past all that. You didn't see it. You didn't... You didn't... What? What? You let it fly over the West Coast? What are you talking about? All this forward positioning of assets, all this talk about how the the Western Pacific is key to U.S. interests, and you allowed this supposedly national security threat to fly over all that, all those pre-positioned assets, and and then fly over the United States itself. It's insane. It's it uh, it's just unravels so many layers of propaganda all at once that. I even I cannot fully comprehend the layer of tomfoolery afoot here, but I can I can sort of convey a little bit of it to you, and perhaps you'll have a better go at it than me. But my goodness, it's uh, uh, I'm I, you know I'm gonna leave it alone. <laughs> I'm gonna leave it alone. But it's why? But I, we should have shot it down over the Pacific, not. After it traversed the entire country, I mean, after all, all countries, and this is my, my view here, all countries are entitled to their sovereignty. But it is their sole responsibility to enforce that sovereignty. No one else is responsible for enforcing America's sovereignty other than Americans. That's our job. If something flies over our airspace without our permission, well, we have the right of way to take it out. And to take it out of our airspace. We don't need a motive, we don't need a, a rhyme or a reason, we don't need to know who sent it and what what it is, we, we don't need to know any of that. And truthfully, the story should have been the U.S. shoots down weather balloon over Pacific, off coast of Washington. Sources say it came from China. That's how the story should have gone. Instead, we have another red scared type drama against China. And then, after deliberately keeping quiet about the balloon, until it was halfway over Montana, now all of these national security officials, now the Biden administration, now all these people who were perfectly content to keep quiet about the balloon, are now talking about all the other balloons flying over Canada and Latin America, and even another one that's close to the United States, although the location of that one has yet to be revealed to the public. Uh, it's, yeah, this is what we were obsessed about for the last few days. And, you know, I'll also say that it really goes to show that what happens over here actually matters a hell of a lot more than what happens over there. You know, what happens over here is not, is in fact not the distraction, but what happens over there is the distraction because this was a balloon. A simple weather balloon caught the entire country's attention 
Because what happens in America matters to Americans. When these balloons fly over Canada, no one cares. When the balloons fly over Latin America, no one cares. When the balloons fly over Asia or China, no, no one cares. But when the balloons fly over America, everybody cares and everybody is paying attention. It's funny how that works. But uh, I, I set this on my podcast Twitter account, which I've finally gotten around to using for something other than posting the links to my episodes. And I'll, I'll try to be more active there as well. But uh, I, I said it on, the, on my Twitter, and I'll say here as well. If we can't handle a simple balloon flying over our airspace, then we deserve to lose this Cold War that people are so desperate to get us into. Like, if you can't handle a balloon, you can't handle the largest industrial power on the planet. That's just an objective fact. That's an objective reality. If it takes... If it takes five days <laughs> to decide whether or not you're going to shoot something down that violates your airspace and you have to have a whole moral dilemma about it, well, you, you ain't cut out for Cold War. You ain't Cold War material. You, you best leave that alone. In, and, you know, I, that's what I hope we do, but yeah, we'll see. But, yeah, this is... A, a very interesting story, if a silly one at that. But all, all in all, it seems to have been this story here, this balloon. the The story around it seems to have been co-opted into yet another piece of anti-China propaganda to drum up support for a conflict with China, and that's what it seems to ultimately have boiled down to. Uh, probably as a means of distracting away from the fact that. The Biden administration knew about it and did nothing about it. And, oh, it's the nefarious Chinese trying to spy on you. Never mind, we could have prevented this by shooting it down before it got here. Don't look at that. No, don't look at that. No. Look at how evil those Chinese are. They want they want to know all of your data. Don't look at how Facebook and Twitter steal all your data as well. But TikTok, yeah, they're, they're evil. Mm -hmm. The Chinese government, they spy. They want to spy on you. They spy on their own people. Don't look at how we do that. Don't look, don't look at the Patriot Act. What do you do? You know, just another distraction from things that our own government does to us. But speaking of a conflict with China, that leads us to our third and final story, which is uh, something that came out of a memo, which I'll say that a uh, war with China coming to a theater near you. I don't have a, I don't, I don't, the, yeah, that, that's the best uh, transition I got there. But, so last week, a memo from Air Force General Michael A. Minahan was leaked out to the public, which really means that this is something that they want us to know, because they don't leak things that they don't want us to know. Which means that they're manufacturing consent for this war. Um, this memo by this general got leaked out to the public, and... In it, the general laid out his projection for how a war between the U.S. and China would come about. He said, quote, I hope I'm wrong. My gut tells me we will fight in 2025. He's talking about we, as in America, fighting China. He says, Xi secured his third term and set his war council in October 2022. Taiwan's presidential elections are in 2024 and will offer Xi a reason, end quote. Now, I'll stop there for a moment and say that 
his assessment is based on a number of assumptions which I don't believe can be counted as givens anymore, courtesy of Taiwan's recent provincial elections, which just passed. Because in those elections, the KMT, the Kuomintang, won big against the Democratic Progress Party, with the DPP being associated with pro-independence and the KMT, that's the Kuomintang, and the DPP being the Democratic Progress Party, the KMT favoring the One China and the DPP being more associated with the pro-independence, and yes, this is a very dramatic oversimplification of the actual policy positions of these parties, because everyone has more than just a foreign policy. But the that's uh, the relevant information for this assessment here, and for China, China, Taiwan, China, U.S. relations here. So his assumption is predicated on a DPP victory in the presidential elections in Taiwan. And I say that this can't be counted as a given because, well, if the KMT wins the elections, I feel that this so-called reason he believes Xi Jinping will gain out of Taiwan's presidential elections won't actually materialize. And a KMT victory is more likely than not when we look at the prior Taiwanese election cycles, where one party will be in power for eight years, then the next party will be in power for eight years. Uh, but this time around, the Kuomintang came to power about two years earlier than they usually would have. So, it's not a given that, that the DPP would have won the election anyway, even had they done well in the recent elections, given Taiwan's eight-year election cycles, the KMT was slated for a victory in 2024 anyway. Which, again, would have thrown a, a massive wrench into this so-called reason that he believes Xi will get out of Taiwan having its elections. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, but he continues, saying, quote, United States' presidential elections are in 2024 and will offer Xi a distracted America. Xi's team, reason, and opportunity are all aligned for 2025. End quote. Now, I'll start with those elections. The winner of Taiwan's presidential elections will be inaugurated in May of 2024. Their election will happen earlier on in the year, and the inauguration will happen in May. <clears throat> but then there's the U.S. Because the U.S. elections don't take place until November with the inauguration of the results of those elections being in January of 2025. So, if the results of both Taiwan's presidential elections and America's presidential elections were to weigh so heavily in Xi Jinping's assessment of whether, when to attack, it would be, at least in my opinion, it would be illogical to wait until after the political systems of both the United States and Taiwan have reorganized themselves, because Minahan believes that there's going to be a conflict in 2025, the year after the election year. So you're going to, if China was waiting for its moment to strike, why would it wait until after the entire the U.S. Congress and the U.S. president come into power in 2025? Why would it wait until then to do the strike? 
No, it, why would it do that? It would strike during the election year of both Taiwan and America instead of waiting until after those election cycles have completed. Particularly during or after November when America goes to the polls. Again, and this is the assumption here, which is that these election cycles actually do weigh as much and weigh as heavily in Xi Jinping's actual assessment as General Minahan believes that the elections do. So that's the, the assumption here, and it will, I've broken down why I think that assumption might be faulty. Now I'll give you more of what he said in this memorandum before I dig into my issues with it. He said, quote, We spent 2022 setting the foundation for victory. We will spend 2023 in crisp operational motion building on that foundation, end quote. Uh, he continues saying that, quote, if you want to know what the operational motion I demand looks like, look at the total force team, look at what total force team Charleston did in January. And he's referring to a series of exercises conducted by the Air Force at Joint Base Charleston in South Carolina. Uh, he says, go faster, drive readiness, integration and agility for ourselves and the joint force to deter and, if necessary, to defeat China. This is the first of eight monthly directives from me. End quote. So that's a doozy, but I'll, I'll keep going. He says, quote, his goal, uh, I mean, his goal is, quote, a fortified, ready, integrated, and agile force uh, agile joint force maneuver team ready to fight and win inside the first island chain. Maximize the use of the force and the tools we currently have and extract full value from things that currently exist. Uh, and, uh, and, quote, and towards the end, he also says, quote, if the tactic, technique, and procedure you are developing increases AMC's ability to fight and win inside the first island chain, move out. If you are comfortable in your approach to training, then you aren't taking enough risk, end quote. Uh, the memo goes on for a bit more than that, but I'll stop there and address my other issues with this, uh, aside from the fact that he managed to write a million paragraphs while saying absolutely nothing. Um, but... Yeah, so going back to where Minahan was setting the stage for this scenario, he said that our elections will offer Xi a distracted America. Which implies that our elections are a distraction from China and Taiwan. Now, this is a common viewpoint regarding foreign policy, which prioritizes foreign affairs over domestic issues. And this is why things that happen here in America are characterized and often dismissed as distractions. The literal leadership decision of our country, one of the most fateful things that we can do every couple years, which is deciding our leadership and deciding the people who get to decide the policies that govern our lives, that's not a distraction. Uh, that's in no way a distraction. That is things that actually matter to Americans, not something that Americans actually concern themselves with because it actually affects Americans.
So the idea that this is a distraction because we're deciding our leadership, that's uh, that means America's distracted. That also implies that what's happening over by China and Taiwan is somehow more important than our own country, which I also greatly disagree with. But again, this is a common viewpoint you'll find from many, many, even conservatives who say that they are America first. Yeah. So they, they get dismissed as distractions, even though we can see just how wrong that notion is. Just take a look at the, the little red balloon and how this balloon, when it, when it flies over Canada, because there were other balloons as well, when they fly over Canada, no one cares. When they fly over Latin America, no one cares. When they fly over the Pacific, no one cares. When they fly over America, everybody cares. Everyone wants something to be done about it. It gets the attention of the entire country. Just like like that. So the idea that what happens over here is the distraction. No, what happens over here matters. In fact, it matters more. Because it actually impacts the lives of the people living here. But that that's one of my main... Uh, detractions from his take here, uh, but General Minahan and many others, politicians, political commentators, mainstream news outlets, they think this way. And even if they disagree on where specifically is most important, they all agree that places that aren't America deserve America's attention more than America. It is stupid, frustrating, and ultimately paradoxical, but you know, uh... <laughs> You know, in time, I will have the isolationist America of my dreams. Uh, and ironically, it'll be the interventionists who give it to me with their bad policy. The wombo combo of Afghanistan, Ukraine, Taiwan, overlaid with our allies abandoning us because we let them down. Over And then overlaid depression on top of that, America will go home on its own just out of necessity. The, the choice will be stripped away from us, which is a humiliation I didn't want to have to go through. But you know what? These people might just give me the America of my dreams, and all I have to do is endure their nonsense to achieve it. But, yeah, it's frustrating and paradoxical. Because what happens here, and the mood of Americans, and this is where the paradox comes in, because they, they view foreign policies more important than what happens here. But what happens here dictates the mood of Americans, and the mood of Americans dictates the things that are and are not acceptable for us to do overseas. When Americans feel the crunch here at home, they are significantly less willing to, su to support going on bizarre foreign adventures. And that's before you get to the fact that what happens over there, in fact, doesn't matter over here it does not and the sentiment of americans just is constantly overlooked americans are viewed with contempt when they don't want to go for the intervention that insert person here wants to do the intervention for if someone doesn't want to go for israel uh, they're, they're bowing down to iran if someone doesn't want to go for ukraine they're they're a, a kremlin puppet and their name is ivan if someone doesn't want to go fight China over Taiwan, they are kowtowing to the, the Ch Chinese Communist Party. It's, it's paradoxical. It's self-defeating, 
quite frankly. Because when you do that, you, you don't win support. And when you lose these conflicts, you certainly don't win support. And when Americans get fed up with interventions, they stop supporting them. And with all these interventions lined up back to back to back to back, and all these failures, these inevitable failures, which will also therefore be lined up back to back to back to back, interventionism as a political philosophy is on the verge of death. It excites me, uh, even if the way it happens doesn't, but that's what we're looking at. And it's just a very interesting observation of mine, how people who want us to intervene overlook the people that they ask the world of for the interventions. Uh, and again, this is before you get to the fact that what happens over there does not matter over here. I mean, how did the Armenia-Azerbaijan war, the first thing we talked about on this podcast, how did that war impact the lives of Americans? It didn't. How did the Taliban's capture of Kabul impact the day-to-day -day functions of Americans? It didn't. Uh, we just talked about Israel bombing an Iranian drone facility. How was that one felt by Americans? Oh, it wasn't. I mean, heck, Ethiopia just had a whole civil war, which went on for two years. And most Americans will never even hear about it. I don't even have to... I, do I even have to bring up how Ukraine is fighting for its life and losing? Now, that one we felt. F fertilizer, a little bit of grain, and gas. We felt the price of gas in an artificial way because the current administration sabotaged our energy independence. We wouldn't have felt that at all had we not done that. So all this is to say that what happens over there is the distraction from things over here that matter to Americans. And that's not to say that what happens over there doesn't matter at all. It, what happens between China and Taiwan matters a hell of a lot to China and Taiwan and to their neighbors. But it does not matter to Americans. And that is a fundamental fact that cannot be avoided. And in, in time is going to have to be reconciled with. And I don't think the interventionists are going to be very happy with the results of that reconciliation. But a distraction... Uh, that, that's, that's what these foreign policy endeavors are. They're a distraction from how our government violates our rights on a daily basis. How our government propagandizes us to manufacture consent for fighting other people's wars. A distraction from how our government sabotaged our energy sector, causing the rise in prices, and they want us to blame Putin for. A distraction from how our government's constant borrowing of money, printed out of thin air, is the root cause of our inflation, and many, many more things. Real issues, which genuinely concern Americans in a way they can feel and see. A way that concerns them in a way that foreign policy just can't compete with because of our physical location on the planet. The emotional attachment to places like Europe and Asia and Taiwan and Hong Kong blinds a lot of people to just how disconnected from those places America and subsequently Americans really are. What happens over here matters. What happens over there does not. 
But alas, but alas, I still have to wait. Wait for my lovely, lovely isolationist America. But you, my even lovelier listeners, that is all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing, folks, and we're going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Taishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.